So if you have a Bible with you, if you turn uh, to Acts 10, starting at verse 1, um, and we'll be making our way through to verse 35. It's quite a long uh, passage um, this morning, so do bear with me as we make our way through that. Um, But Acts 10, the words should appear behind me as well if you don't have a Bible with you. So Acts 10, verses 1 to 35. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius, was, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayer and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. They send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who had spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and called it a devout soldier, who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. While the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kind of four all kinds of four footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, as he arrived in Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man 
in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. So send uh, to Joppa for Simon, who is named Peter. He and his guests, he, he is a guest in the home of Simon at the tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Amen. And God will bless to us the reading of his word this morning. We got there. I didn't think I was going to get through that at some points. Um, if, as Dave said, if you have been with us over the last sort of eight or nine weeks, we have been in a series called Church Alive, and we've been looking at the book of the Acts, and um, we've, as, as he said, we've, we've broken it down into smaller blocks that we will dip in and out of throughout the course of the year, and, and each of these blocks categorized the movement of the church, the direction of the church as it, as it came alive, um, as was proclaimed by Jesus uh, the day that he ascended to be with the Father, when he was talking to his disciples and he said that you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as the book of, of Acts unravels, uh, we see this explosion of the church coming alive, first at home in Jerusalem and into the neighboring towns and cities and then eventually going as far as the ends of the earth. It was the Indian author Amit Ray who coined the phrase, life is a collection of moments, and he was right. And it's moments that begin to characterize our lives as we live and we, when we grow up and we experience different things that slowly define who we are and the people that we meet in, uh, when we get our, our first job and we buy our first house and we start a business or we get married, all of these things, and moment by moment, our lives begin um, to create a tapestry, a catalog of moments. But every once in a while, along with these collection of moments in our lives, we experience big, iconic moments, moments that are big and pivotal, moments that change the course of history. And that's exactly what an iconic moment is. It is a moment uh, that will define the moment that it happens in and redefine everything that follows it. As we look back on the last century alone, in the last 100 years, there have been so many iconic moments in so many different spheres of life, moments that shook the world when they happened and propelled it into a whole new direction. So in science, we had the first ever organ transplant in 1954, which led to the first heart transplant some 20 years later in technology, we saw the first person being flown into space in 1961, which led to the moon landing some eight years later. In sport, Roger Bannister was the first athlete to ever run the four-minute mile in 1954, and he, as he set the bar for all middle-distant runners. In 1947, Jackie Robinson uh, broke the race barrier for the Brooklyn Dodgers as he was the first ever African-American major baseball league player, uh, forever changing the complexion of the sport. And we've also witnessed big, iconic, significant steps being taken in human rights and, and human equality um, as women were given the right to vote in the UK in 1928 and the UN proclaimed its universal declaration of human rights in 1948. So many iconic 
moments, moments in the last 100 years alone that have defined everything that followed the moment that they happened in. And just like so many spheres of life, the church has too had its iconic moments. And the passage that we're looking at this morning in Acts 10 is one of those moments, an iconic moment that defined the church and catapulted it into a whole new identity. This was an iconic moment for the life of the early church because it not only defined what happened in that passage, in the moment, but redefined everything that followed right to this day as we know what it is to be the church. And there's just two things that I want to highlight today as we kind of unpack um, this passage. Uh, There was, as you imagine, probably about a million things we could have pulled out of that passage because it was so long, but there's just two things that I want to highlight this morning uh, that probably had way bigger ramifications for the church at the time that it probably wasn't even aware of. Two things that I believe are still really important for us to learn today. And then two things are new perspective and new proximity. New perspective and new proximity. And the first is new perspective. And the passage that we read is marked by two significant visions that went on in the lives of Peter and Cornelius. They both had divine encounters that led the Lord revealing something really important to them both. And the first takes place right at the beginning of the passage in verses 1 and 2. And it does that thing that happens so often in Scripture when it just kind of throws something off as like a one-liner, but it's actually something really kind of you know important, significant, dense, almost a throwaway comment, but something that carries way more weight. Like the way we, when we read the Gospels and we read of Jesus uh, and, the, and the Gospel accounts of him and, the, and they write something like, a great multitude followed him and he healed them all. And it's just like this one-liner and then it's brushed across as if it was just this thing. But it's way more dense than we probably realize. And the same thing happens here at the beginning of verses, in verses one and two. And there's three things that, uh, that it tells us. Number one, it tells us that uh, Cornelius was a Roman centurion. And if you're a centurion in what was the Italian regiment, you're a pretty important guy, right? And you would have been deemed one of the most loyal of any Roman troops in the Roman Empire. He would have been in charge of 100 men since the name Centurion. And his position would likely correspond to what we know as a captain or a company commander in our modern context. He is a man of status. In the words of Ron Burgundy, he's a pretty big deal. Number two, his, he, he was serious about his faith. The passage writes um, that he and all of his family were devout. And the passage says that he is uh, God-fearing is, is the term that it uses, but there's been a little bit of debate among scholars as to what that actually means. Is that taken generally as in he is a religious type or is it meant in a more technical sense that he is a God-fearer, i.e. he was sympathetic to the Jewish belief of God, that he followed their practices, but he wasn't a full convert because uh, he wasn't circumcised, which was the Jewish custom at the time. When we moved into our house after getting married, um, I got chatting to one of our neighbors one day, and we had this kind of long, lengthy conversation uh, literally, I mean, the man talks and talks and you can't get away. So it's like, once you're out, you just commit to being there. And we were talking for ages and he uh, was nattering on as normal. And then the conversation came around him asking what I did with myself. And 
I told him I worked for a church and I worked for Scripture Union and, and whatever else. And the conversation just kind of like died. He was like completely on it. Like his investment in the conversation was gone at this point. And he just ended the conversation with, oh, so you're a God-fearer then? And that was the end of the conversation. But that's what it is. That's what it meant for Cornelius to be a God-fearer. He was, um, he was one who was sympathetic to the view of the Jewish God. He and all his household were God-fearers. So he was a Roman centurion. He was serious about his faith. And thirdly, he prayed often and gave generously to those in need. So not only did he believe in God, but he practiced his faith too. And, and he gave generously to those who needed. And he prayed often. And it was as he was uh, practicing this daily devotion of prayer that he has this encounter, this revelation from God through an angel. And so by three in the afternoon, which was a recognized time of Jewish prayer, so we can, we can really see how much he was invested in this. And like always, he began to pray. And as he was, was praying, he had this encounter with, with an angel that told him, one, that God recognized his generosity, and two, he instructed him uh, to send to Joppa for a man named Peter who was about 30 miles away and to bring him back to hear what it is he has to say. Verses 7 and 8 in the passage we read says this, when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius had called, called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent the men to Joppa. And he just does it, right? There's no questions, doesn't ask anything. He just goes and he does it. Off they went, there's no hesitation. So that's kind of the first vision that happens, that occurs in the passage that we read. And then we have Peter and his vision that comes right after. It's the following day uh, from when Cornelius had his encounter and Peter has his and it is incredibly personal. Because the thing to remember about Peter is that he is a devout Jew. He would have prided himself in being one of God's chosen people. And the thing to remember about the Jews is that they were extremely strict about their set-apartness. It was their set-apartness that they wanted the world to be aware of because they wanted everyone to know that they weren't like anybody else. And of all the laws that the Jews kind of lived under, it was the food laws, actually, that were one of the greatest tellers of their set-apartness. Leviticus 11 is an entire passage that you can read and it outlines all the foods that they deem clean and unclean that they can eat and they can't eat. And Peter would have known this like the back of his hand. And so it's about 12 noon the following day, as the passage tells us, and his encounter goes something like this. He heads onto the roof to pray and he gets hungry. And as food's being prepared, he has this vision and this is what happens, verses 10 to 16 again. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. 
So as he prays, he falls into this trance and, and he sees this sheet being lowered from heaven uh, full of all these animals and reptiles and, and birds and whatever else. And the Lord just commands him very simply, kill and eat. But his response is quite different to Cornelius where in response to his vision, he just obeys and he goes and he just does what the Lord says. Peter just point blank refuses at the start because the thing that God was asking him to do here in killing and eating these animals, this would have been highly offensive. This would have been an incredibly offensive thing to have been asked to do. Pete Gregg in his book, Dirty Glory, uh, talks about this command like this. It was a confrontation designed to offend the, the most deeply ingrained cultural and religious convictions of any devout Jew. It was a confrontation designed to offend the most deeply ingrained cultural and religious convictions of any devout Jew. And that was Peter, a devout Jew. And these, these commands given by the Lord were deeply offensive. And his reply is simple. He just says, surely not. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the Lord comes right back at him and, and he kind of shatters his resistance when he says these words, do not call anything impure that I have made clean. And then this conversation happens uh, about three times uh, and then all of a sudden it's kind of one of those click your finger moments and uh, Peter is kind of back in the room as it were. There's no sheet, he doesn't see anything. He's just left on a roof by himself and he's left completely confused by the whole thing. And then Cornelius' men arrive at that point. Verses 17 to 20 say this, While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up, go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So that's what he does. He goes down and he greets these men. And it's at this point that the cogs begin to turn in Peter's mind. He begins to realize what was going on in that dream. He begins to realize that this was really nothing to do with clean and unclean animals. But what about these clean and unclean animals, what they represented? And the words do not hesitate in verse 20 are really important in Peter realizing what is going on. Uh, the Greek for this phrase is uh, medin diakrinanta or something probably a lot less Northern Irish than that a pronunciation. But this translates as make no distinction. So Peter goes down and he meets the men and asks them why they've come and they tell him that Cornelius had sent them and that, they, that he has to go with them to Cornelius' house so that he can tell them what it is he has to say. And that's the light bulb moment for Peter. For Peter. Make no distinction. When he realizes who these men are and what they want, he realizes what the vision is about. And what the Spirit is doing in this moment is shifting his perspective. It's giving him a brand new way to see. Because the issue here is not about clean and unclean food. The bigger issue here at hand is 
the Jew and Gentile tension. This was an issue of racial prejudice. Jews and Gentiles did not like each other. They were polar opposites, at least in the eyes of one another. They did not like each other at all. And John Stock comments on their, their relationship like this. It is difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf that yawned in those days between Jews on one side and Gentiles, even God-fearers, on the other. The impassable gulf. And what does God say? Make no distinctions. Why? Because Jews and Gentiles were both made in the image of God. They were both created equal in the eyes of God and, in, and it was both Jews and Gentiles that Jesus went to the cross for. We are all image bearers of God. Those like us and those least like us. And that changes how we See, that has to change how we see. That has to change our biblical worldview and inform our position in the world as the people of God. We have to see people the way Jesus sees people. You know, the really interesting thing about this passage is that it is, um, you know, when, when the pe- people who kind of assemble the Bible and they put uh, titles in, this one has been, has been entitled The Conversion of Cornelius, but there's actually a complete different conversion that happens first in this passage before we get to Cornelius, and it's the conversion of Peter. And it's not a conversion of faith, but it's a conversion of his worldview. It's a conversion of his perspective, In his vision, the Lord broke down the deep-seated racial intolerance that was within his heart. And that had happened first before anything else was to follow it. How on earth was he going to reach Cornelius and his family and his household if his heart wasn't the way it needed to be, if his heart was filled with racial intolerance? And it reminded me of that truth, uh, that simple truth, that if we want God to use us, We have to allow him to change us first. We have to put ourselves in a position to humble ourselves before him and let him do a deep work in us to then do something through us, to shift our perspective. We have to allow him to abolish the borders of our heart, to allow the scales to drop from our eyes and to help us see what he sees. Dr. David DeCusson, an American pastor and author, writes these words in his book, Neighborliness. As image bearers of the same Father, each one of us reflects a different aspect of the beauty of God. When we separate from others, when we are separate from others who are different from us, we cannot see the fullness of the beauty of God. As image bearers of the same Father, each one of us reflects a different aspect of the beauty of God. When we separate ourselves from others who are different from us, we cannot see the fullness of God. And that's it. We cannot see the fullness of the beauty of God. And that is what the church alive is. People of every walk, of every background in life, finding hope and belonging and purpose in a God who makes no distinctions. 
And that's what, big, what Peter began to see as he answered the door to Cornelius' servants. We begin to see the fullness of the beauty of God. That is what the church alive is. I believe this passage is about us gaining new perspective, about seeing the world differently, about seeing the world and all of its people the way God sees them. But secondly, I believe this passage teaches us something about new proximity. To this point, we have acknowledged that Peter's perspective towards the Gentiles needed to change. And it was his new perspective that enabled this new proximity. How do we know? Look at verses 22 and 23 again. It says this, The man replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house as guests. And in those days, if you invited someone into your house to be a guest, you weren't just kind of bringing them in for you know a couple of hours and then sending them on their way again. No, what you were doing is you were bringing them into your house and you were offering them a night's stay. Peter is, is committing cultural murder here. Jews and Gentiles weren't even meant to share the same food, never mind being in the same house. And as if that isn't bad enough, the story goes on and Peter gets up the next day and goes to Cornelius's house. So not only did Peter invite them in, but he accepts their invitation to go. This is unlawful stuff in the eyes of the Jews. Luke, who writes Acts, tells us this as Peter arrives in Cornelius' house, verses 28. He, Peter, said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Peter shouldn't have been anywhere near this guy's house. It is utterly ridiculous in the eyes of devout Judaism, but Peter's newfound perspective on the Gentiles gave him every right to be in close proximity to them. And just like the vision did with Peter, the challenge that I guess I felt as I prepared for today is how we are to respond to the prejudice in our own hearts, the prejudice that whether we want to admit it or not is there. Are we going to be people who are willing to get close? As you walk out those, those doors today, you will see people of every walk of life, locals, refugees, street, pe- street preachers. You'll see people of the LGBTQI community. You will see people of the homeless community, people of every tribe and tongue and nation. What is your response to them? How do you see them? Will you get close to those who are least like you, those of different political views, those of different socioeconomic backgrounds, those of faith and those of none? And you know, as we talk about issues like like prejudice, it's, it's heavy stuff and I get that. But sometimes I think that we, we automatically go to think of what is the big and obvious, you know, things like race, things like you know, sexual orientation, things like political worldviews, all that sort of stuff. What about the people who just frustrate you in your office? 
People who just grind your gears because they have no integrity. People who, who you, you, to just annoy you. What is your response to them? Because whether you like it or not, there is a prejudice that is in there. And we have to be willing to surrender that. What is your first response? Is it to get close? To increase your proximity? I used to do some uh, work with uh, a homeless charity around Belfast. And from time to time, we would have went out in teams to... uh, just hang out with some of the people who were living in the, on the streets at the time and you'd have co- sort of long conversations and you'd learn their hopes and their dreams and their fears and how they got to where they are and where they want to be, all sorts of stuff, really sort of insightful stuff. But very often during our conversations, the thing that they would say is, you're the first person to speak to me today. You're the first person to speak to me today. Thanks for stopping. And if I'm being honest with myself, it's not always my first response. It's not always to stop. It's not always to get close because it's uncomfortable, if we're honest. It stretches us. It disrupts us. But that is the challenge. To be people who make no distinction and draw near, just like Peter did. And you know, one of the striking things that I discovered as I prepared for today is that even Gentiles like Cornelius, who were God-fearers, who worshipped the same God that the Jews did, who went to the same synagogues, who had the same moral and ethical standards as the Jews, were largely respected by the Jews but were not fully accepted because they weren't full converts. And the question that it kind of posed to me, or, or, or rather wrecked me with, really, was how often do we in the church hold a posture of partial acceptance to those inside and outside the church because their worldview is slightly different to ours? How often do we hold a posture of partial acceptance to those inside and outside the church because their worldview is slightly different to ours. Like we give people that half welcome that John talked about last week. How often do we do this? How often do I do this? And it's hard, don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong, it's hard, diversity and unity is difficult. And I'd be the first to say that I don't know all the answers to the kind of complex and nuanced issues that face the church today. I would say I don't think we were ever commissioned to fix people. I don't have all the answers, but this is what I do know. God says make no distinction. So we get close. We get close like Peter did. And I love how the passage that we read this morning ends. And I love how the ESV puts it. Verses 34 and 35 say this, so when Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In a world where partial acceptance is very real, both inside and outside the church, I'm not saying this is just a church issue, but it does exist within the church and it happens outside of the church 
as well. This is the challenge. And as I've said before, this is hard, but man alive is this good news. This is good news. That's why everyone in Cornelius' house that day were able to know Jesus for themselves. Because Peter got into close proximity with those least like him. And we have to do the same. It was William Temple who once said that the church primarily exists for the sake of those who are still outside it. May we be a people of close proximity. This was a church that was marked by new perspective, that saw beyond the cultural barriers and borders of the day. And it was that new perspective that saw the church come alive to the Gentiles. And this was a church marked with new proximity about how Peter's personal prejudice shifted his perspective from exclusion to welcome and creates new proximity between the Jew and the Gentile. So to circle back to where we started this morning, life is a series of moments and this particular story is an iconic moment that forever changed the landscape of the church. Let us be a church that actively lives in light of this iconic moment. An outward facing people, a people willing to have its prejudices and perspectives shifted. That sees others as image bearers of God and moves towards them.